0: explained, uh, Romans chapter 1, verses 16 to 17. I see Margaret back there. Hello, Margaret. It is so, glad, so great to see you, Margaret. <laughs> what a joy, what a treasure to see Margaret here today. Uh, such a blessing. Uh, before we go into the word this morning, uh, let's just offer a word of prayer uh, to the Lord. Lord God, we come before you humbly uh, today, uh, just asking that we would understand this gospel. Lord, as we go through the book of Romans over the course of the next many months, uh, Lord, that we would just have a deeper understanding of what it is that you would to have us know about your son, Jesus Christ, about this great salvation that we have, and Lord, how we live in light of this salvation. Uh, Lord, teach us what you have for us today, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I really cared a lot about my grades in seminary. Uh, which was kind of a new thing for me. Uh, in college, I didn't care a whole lot about grades at all. I subscribed to the see me and free me uh, kind of uh, uh, schooling that uh, I thought would get me through and, and did get me through at the time. But uh, when in seminary, I was a lot older, and I was actually writing checks out of my own bank account to pay for uh, my seminary degree. Uh, and I had moved my family across the country uh, to do this, so uh, grades really became important to me. It was something that I really wanted to do was to actually... Be perfect in seminary. I wanted to graduate with a 4.0 grade point average, and that was the goal. And I started out really great. First couple classes, A's, no problem. And then disaster struck. (laughs) Intro to world missions, A minus in the class. And that was it. Forever my grade point average, my dream of a 4.0 GPA uh, was down the drain, forever lost. It didn't matter if I got an A in every class for the rest of seminary, I didn't, but it didn't matter if I had, I would never be able to attain that 4.0 again. My perfection uh, was gone. Well, you know, some people do actually graduate uh, from school with a 4.0 grade point average. It's actually possible uh, to do it. But perfect righteousness, that's another story altogether. We cannot be perfectly righteous no matter what we do. It's impossible for any human being to achieve. Uh, God is holy. God is without blemish, but we are born sinners and we sin. And so double whammy, perfection lost before we're even born and made worse then by the sin that we commit. Now, I realized when I got out of seminary that nobody cared at all about whether I had a 4.0 or a 1.0. As long as I had a degree, that's the only thing that people were interested in. But God does care about our sin record, our righteousness record. We need a perfect, unblemished record if we are going to get into heaven. And since we don't have it and we can't get it on our own, we need to ride someone else's perfection into heaven. And that's what we do through Jesus Christ. And so Paul shows us in these verses the power of, of God's gospel is to credit us with the perfect righteousness that we need through the gospel of Jesus Christ to get us into heaven. And it's the best trade ever. We get his sinlessness, his righteousness, and he takes our sin. And all we have to do is believe. And that's the gospel. It's that simple. And so let's look at our verses again this morning. Verses 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written. But the righteous man shall live by faith. So up to this point in Romans uh, through the first 15 verses, this is what Paul has said so far. God has called him to spread the gospel. He's thankful for the faith of the church in Rome that received the gospel. He wanted to visit them so that that each could receive blessing from the other, and that he was eager to preach the gospel. And now he's going to add one more thing about the gospel before he dives deeper into the actual content of the gospel, and that is that he is not ashamed of the gospel. And that seems like a strange statement to make. Why would Paul need to say, I am not ashamed of the gospel? Uh, It's actually being ashamed of the gospel is the opposite of being eager to preach it. And so uh, we would ask, what does this mean? Why does Paul need to say it? What is there about the gospel that there is to be ashamed about? Well, This word ashamed has a few different meanings. Ashamed can mean to be disappointed in, in the sense that something that we believed turns out to be false. It's not true, and and we're disappointed in that. Or it can mean that we're embarrassed by something because it shows that we uh, are not reliant on ourselves. We have a need that we can't fulfill in ourselves, and that makes us dependent on the gospel when we want to be independent. We don't want to be dependent on anything. Or it can mean that we are ashamed uh, in the sense of being ashamed of the ridicule that we are going to face because we believe this gospel and we live our lives by it. So I want us to think about uh, Paul in context and his audience in context because it's easy to lose the context of this and forget about Paul uh, and what he was actually going through as he's writing this letter to the Romans Uh, Remember that he was planning a trip to Jerusalem when he was writing this book of Romans. And he was going to go to Jerusalem and he was going to bring this offering that he had collected and he was going to take it to the saints in Jerusalem, not knowing if the people who opposed him in Jerusalem were going to kill him when he got there. So that's Paul. And now he's writing to a group of people in Rome who live in the shadow of the emperor who uh, could easily lose their lives for being a Christian as well. So there was a real and present danger in being a Christian. And the anti-Christian majority oppressed the Christian minority. And it's a shameful thing to be oppressed uh, Molly and I watched *The uh, Fiddler on the Roof* a few weeks ago, and uh, if you remember that movie, there are a couple scenes in that movie. Aside from the great music uh, in the movie, there are a couple scenes where where the, this Jewish village is being persecuted by this anti-Jewish uh, majority, and you can just see the shame in Tevye's face and all of the other. Uh, people who live in that village, the shame of being oppressed uh, for what you believe in and because of your ethnicity. And so that's kind of this this shame that we have the potential to experience uh, by following Christ. But Jesus told us not to fear shame uh, for the sake of God. Jesus, in fact, went to the cross scorning its shame, as we learn about in the book of Hebrews. But whenever you and I talk about the gospel, we certainly risk shame. Uh, and that's because people may challenge us about the gospel because it is foolishness to them. They could view it as foolishness. They could also uh, be confronted by it. it. They may challenge us because they're confronted by the truth of the gospel. Because the gospel is convicting And the gospel confronts people with their sin and their need for a savior and their need to repent of it. And and people don't want to admit their need because that means there's something wrong with the way they're living. And that means that they're not completely independent of uh, someone uh, who has control over them by uh, the law that God imposes. And so it challenges their belief that, that they are free to do whatever they want to do whenever they want to do it. And people don't want to be told that they are sinners in need of a savior. Uh, People don't like to be told that. It's offensive to them. Uh, But those people, you remember, are really just like you and I were before we knew the good news of the gospel too and understood that we are sinners in need of a savior. Now remember also that Paul was among uh, the elite of society. Uh, This is a man who was very well educated, multilingual, uh, had Roman citizenship, which was a really big deal uh, in those days. And now he's being mocked and he's being treated like a criminal because of the gospel. So if anybody had reason to be ashamed of the gospel, Paul had reason to be ashamed of the gospel, but he was not. Because he understood the transforming power of the gospel. He understood real life change that results when you finally understand, remember, Paul was the most educated guy around, but now he finally understands that he is a sinner in need of a savior after being confronted uh, with the truth of Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. And so he understood that he was a a sinner and, and under God's wrath and yet saved by God's grace. So Paul was not ashamed. In fact, he was just the opposite of ashamed. He was eager to share this gospel. And let's think about this disgrace that he endured. He was a prisoner in Philippi, chased from Thessalonica, smuggled out of Berea, mocked in Athens, called a fool in Corinth, stoned in Lystra, and he's only, that's all only, he takes us through uh, the third missionary journey. He still had yet to be imprisoned in Jerusalem, in Caesarea, in Rome, uh, and ultimately executed in Rome after his release for a short time. But still, he was not ashamed to preach this gospel, and he was eager to do it, in fact. And why? Because he wanted others to experience God's love uh, that, he, uh, that he had experienced through the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I've said before that this word gospel actually means good news. And so when we tell somebody we have good news, they will ask us the content of the good news. Well, what is your good news? And so uh, we might say something like, well, I got a new job or we're going to have a new grandchild or uh, I'm cured from whatever sickness I had. That's the content of the good news. And this is the fourth time already in Romans that Paul has used this word gospel, and he's going to flesh out this word a little bit more today. He's already given us the bare content of the gospel in verses 3 and 4 when he said this about it. He said, the gospel is concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord." So those are the bare facts, the bare bones of the gospel. But today, Paul is going to put some meat on the bones of the gospel and tell us five facts about God's power and purposes in the gospel. So uh, five facts about this gospel that we get in these few verses. Uh, First of all, it is God's power to save. Now, Paul's readers knew all about human power, right? They stood in the shadow of the emperor, and the emperor had as much power as any man could possibly have. And people with great power can make us submit to their will. They can make us do things that we may not want to do necessarily, but they never have the power to change human hearts. That power is supernatural power. That power belongs to God alone. Humans can never have that power, And just like we sang a minute ago, the same power that God God used to raise Jesus from the dead, that changes human hearts too. That's incredible power that God has. So God's power to save. Verse 16, it says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. Now, we would all agree that God is omnipotent, right? He's all powerful. Uh, There's nothing that God cannot do. Um, And we see that like when we look around in evidence of creation, we see God's power everywhere, right? Uh, Creation is is God's amazing display of power to the human eye. Uh, But Paul wasn't talking about God's power in creation here. Uh, Creation, if I may say it reverently, was easy for God. Uh, God met met no resistance in, in creation. God spoke and the creation came into being. But saving souls is completely different because man's heart is completely resistant to God. Uh, Jeremiah 17.9, a man's heart is deceitfully wicked. Uh, Romans 3.10, there is no one who does good. No, not even one. And so for God to do this work of salvation, he's got to change something that's opposed to him. And and that just shows uh, that God's power to save is even mightier than his power to create because he can save human souls that don't want to be saved and he can turn human hearts toward him that don't want to be turned toward him. And so that's the power of God to save. This word for, this little word, uh, it is the power of God for salvation is interesting that it's translated for, because it's actually a preposition that should be translated into or unto, uh, not for, uh, because the, the reason that's important is because this this preposition into or unto shows movement from here to there, uh, from a place that you weren't to a place that, that you now are, that God has moved you to. And so... When we talk about moving from something into something, we're talking about the power of God to save. And the the, the gospel is not God's advice about how we can become better people or how we can live our best life now. That's not the gospel. The gospel is the power to change human hearts and to move them from the realm of God's wrath and judgment into the realm of his salvation. That's incredible, supernatural power uh, that is completely an act of God and it leaves no room for us to claim any credit or responsibility for it. It's solely an act of God uh, for salvation. Now, this word salvation uh, is a a word that means deliverance or rescue. And so salvation means we're being delivered from something or rescued from, from something. And what we're being rescued from is God's wrath which is a fearful thing. But if we have believed in Jesus Christ as our savior, we are never going to experience God's wrath. We have already been saved from God's wrath. As soon as we have believed in Jesus Christ, he has removed his wrath from us uh, because the blood of Jesus will cover and pay for all our sins. And when we die, Jesus is going to say, or God is going to say to us, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. But if you have not accepted Jesus and received him as your savior, he's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. And so uh, this gospel here is the incredible, unmatchable uh, power of God to save. That's the first fact. The second fact is that the gospel is God's offer of grace to all. God created us because he loved us and he created a perfect habitat for Adam and Eve uh, to live in. And he placed only one restriction on them, and that was that they should not eat from the knowledge from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But because they couldn't even adhere to that one restriction, uh, they ate. And because they ate, sin and death entered into the world. But God promised a savior as far back as Genesis chapter three. Uh, and in the fullness of time, God brought Jesus Christ, the, the perfect son of God, fully God, fully man, the God man to live this perfect life. And to die uh, this atoning death on the cross and to be raised from the dead so that whoever believes will be freed from the guilt of their sin. And so God offers this salvation to everyone equally. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek And so God graciously offers uh, this grace to everyone without limitation on race, ethnicity, gender, or any other limiting factor that we could think of. God invites everyone. Now, historically, uh, the gospel was presented to the Jews first, right? First, God chose Abraham uh, and he said, I will bless you But then Genesis 12 tells us that I will bless the nations through you. So it was always God's plan that the nations would be blessed through Abraham, but it came to the Jews first historically. The Jews are also first in privilege. God gave the Jews the covenants and God gave them the law. So they were the first to have those things too. But the point that Paul is making is that even though uh, historically and by privilege, the Jews are first, God never intended to exclude the Gentiles. And so God offers us salvation the same way he offers it to the Jews. And it's by faith. So the gospel is God's power to save. It's God's gracious offer to everyone. But the third thing is that it is a gift that we must receive Verse 16, again, it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So the gospel is God's universal offer to everyone and it's open to everyone, but not everyone will receive it. Only those who believe and accept the gospel will receive its benefits. Uh, The Greek word for the word uh, believe is this word pistio. Uh, and the noun form of that that we see in the next verse, verse 17, uh, that the just shall live by faith is the word piston. So you see it's the same word. Believe and faith are the same. It's the same concept in, in, uh, in the Greek here. And so when we think about that, believing and having faith are the same. And we'll see that as we go on. But what does it mean to believe the gospel You know, we we know the objective facts, right? Jesus Christ died on the cross and he rose from the dead. Uh, That's the gospel in its most bare facts. Uh, And the gospel is the power of salvation to all who believe it. But belief is more than just agreeing to facts, right? Uh, The devil knows who Jesus is, but he's not saved. We have to do more than just agree to the facts. Uh, I can agree, for example, that this here is a stool, right? And it's got four legs and it sure looks like it's got the, the girth to support me, right? But just knowing that is not faith, right? I actually have to go. I have to sit on this stool and say, all right, this stool is going to hold me up. Now I've exercised faith, right? Now I have shown that I actually believe that this stool can hold me up. And when we do that, that is the faith that is required in order to save. So when we place our faith in Jesus Christ for salvation, we're not just assenting to facts that he rose from the dead, Uh, that he died on the cross and rose from the dead. We're placing our faith and trust in him that just as he went to heaven before us, he will take us to heaven too when we die. So it's more than a profession of faith. It's placing your faith and your trust in him. And as I said before, it's the best trade ever. He takes our sin and we get his righteousness, but we have to receive that gift. And so that's the third fact. It's a gift that we must receive. Fourth, The gospel is God's righteousness revealed. Verse 17, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. In the gospel, God reveals his own righteousness to us. And before we ask, what does the righteousness of God mean? Let's talk about. Uh, his revelation of himself, because this is so important. Let's just pause and realize that that we would know nothing about God unless he revealed himself to us uh, through nature, through his word, through the cross of Jesus Christ. We would know nothing unless he revealed himself to us. He would be totally unknowable to us, except for those facts that he chose to make himself known to us. But that's only the half of it because he had to create us with mental ability and spiritual capacity to be able to uh, understand who he is and to know who he is too. And so when God reveals anything to us about himself and we are able to comprehend it, uh, it's a sheer act of God's grace. Uh, The gospel is God's ultimate revelation of himself and it continues even to this day. Uh, The righteousness of faith is revealed, is present tense. It's continuing. It's ongoing. God continues to reveal himself today uh, through nature and through his word. And as we'll see in the coming weeks, those who deny him have no excuse because God has made himself plainly known to all. So what is this righteousness of God? Well, there are several possible meanings here. And uh, this can get a little bit tricky, so stick with me, all right? Uh, stick with me as we go through these things. The first thing that we might say is that it's an attribute of God, and, and the righteousness of God is one of his attributes, just like justice, love, mercy, grace, goodness, uh, all of these things are attributes of God, just one part of his character. And it's true to say that the righteousness of God is one of his attributes, But when you think about it, we could know this righteous attribute of God by looking at the law, right? If we looked at the Ten Commandments, we would know that God is perfectly holy in righteousness from that alone. So the gospel is more than just an attribute of God. The righteousness of God is more than an attribute of God. It has to be more than that. Uh, So perhaps it's an attribute of God and it's also an activity of God in salvation, Well, it is an activity of God in salvation, for sure, because salvation would not be possible apart from Christ's atoning death on the cross and the fact that he rose from the dead. But Paul had to mean more than God's activity in salvation, too. Because the fact that Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose from the dead does not necessarily mean that we are saved, right? It's more than that. It's more than an attribute of God. It's more than an activity of God in salvation. If it was just an attribute and just an activity, those things alone would not be enough to save us. We still need His righteousness applied to us. And so it's more than an activity, it's more than an attribute. I would say that the righteousness of God is an accomplishment of God in redeeming sinners by crediting us sinners with his righteousness when we believe by faith in the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And so if you have the NIV, it translates this verse, a righteousness from God. And Philippians has the same concept, a letter that Paul wrote in chapter three, verse nine, he said, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith And so it's a transfer, it's a credit of God's righteousness from himself to our account. So righteousness is not a subjective human standard uh, that we can impose on ourselves. We think that we are righteous because uh, we give money to the poor or because we come to church on Sundays. That is not what makes us righteous. It's not following some moral or ethical code. Righteousness is an objective legal standard, and God is the only judge of someone who is righteous. And we can't obtain this righteousness on our own because of our sin. And so if we're to have right standing with God, God has to give it to us as a gift. And that's exactly what he does when we put our faith in Jesus for salvation. And then God declares us righteous. It's not that we are righteous, we are not righteous, but God declares us righteous. It's like this chart. Uh, Christ's righteousness is credited to us as the believer and our guilt is credited uh, back to Jesus who died for us on the cross. And that's the only righteousness that is effective to save us from our sins. And so the result is that God will not punish us for our sins, we're no longer under God's wrath. And when God looks at us, he sees his perfect sinless son. And he doesn't see our sin anymore. So praise the Lord. Hallelujah, right? That is the gospel. Can I get an amen? Amen. Amen. That is the good news of the gospel. So when we think about that, uh, Romans, uh, Paul particularly says here that this righteousness is a righteousness from faith to faith. And there are so many of these little phrases and words in Romans that, you know, if we really look at it closely, we have to look at them and say, well, what does that mean? What does from faith to faith mean? And again, there could be several options. So uh, let me go through this uh, slowly with you and we'll see if we can grasp what Paul's meaning is here. So the first thing that it could mean is that it's the origin of faith. Uh, God is the origin of faith. He gives that faith to men. So from God's faith to man's faith, that's a possibility. The spread of faith is another possibility. Uh, Faith spreads when one person shares that, gospel with another. And so that's a possibility of what it could mean. It could also mean the growth of faith within a believer, the degree of faith that one believer has over time from a lesser faith to a greater faith as time goes on. Or it could mean an expression or figure of speech, which means from first to last, beginning to end, through and through, Uh, four options that we can choose from. I like the first option and the fourth option the best uh, because they refer to how people receive God's righteousness, not necessarily how the gospel is spread or how we grow in our faith. Now, to be sure, Paul is going to talk about those things later on uh, in the book of Romans. He's going to address those issues. But this part of the book of Romans, chapter one to five, is about justification, which is a fancy word for saying how sinful people are made righteous with God. That's what justification means. And so that's what this part of the letter is about. And so what we see here is that uh, faith is uh, through and through. We need faith. Uh, The gospel is by faith. We receive it by faith through and through from first to last Not by works. And so that is what it means to say faith by faith in the sense that it's an expression of figure or a figure of speech. But we also have to realize that option one is also true. Uh, Later in the letter, uh, Paul is going to talk about even the faith that we have is a gift from God. Uh, we would not have faith if god did not grant us this gift of faith and so in romans uh, chapter 2 verse 4 it says it is the kindness of god that leads you to repentance and romans 326 that god may be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in jesus So we must have faith. It is by faith through and through from first to last, but realize that even the faith that we have is a gift from God and we can't take any credit for it. So I go with options one and option four there, and we'll talk about options two and three as we proceed throughout the letter. So that is the fourth fact. It is God's righteousness revealed. And then finally, its results are for today and for eternity verse 17 again as it is written but the righteous man shall live by faith now that's a quote from habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4 uh, and so when we look at that we have to ask ourselves this question does that mean the righteous man will live his life by faith or does that mean that the righteous man will live forever because of his faith Now, I had frankly never considered the second result or the second option uh, ever. I had always read that verse and thought that it meant that a man lives out his life day by day uh, by his faith. But I think we need to consider the context of Habakkuk as we think about this question. Remember, Habakkuk was complaining to God that God planned to use the wicked Babylonians to judge the sin and idolatry of Israel. And God responded to Habakkuk, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, Habakkuk's audience had no guarantee that they were going to survive this judgment of God through the Babylonians on them. Uh, They could have been killed very easily by the Babylonians. They were helpless. The Babylonians were far more powerful than they were And God had already said that he was using the Babylonians as his instrument of judgment on them. So they were completely helpless. They could only wait and they could only pray. And yet while they lived and while they prayed, they should live their lives by their faith. And yet at the same time, those who God declared righteous because of their faith would live forever, even if they died at the hands of the Babylonians. And so I think for Habakkuk's audience, uh, it was probably both. They lived their lives by faith, but they will also live eternally because of their faith. But what was Paul's intent in using Habakkuk's quote here? And again, I want us to remember that Paul's main concern in this part of the letter was justification, how sinners are made righteous before God. And so I think that Paul used this quote to say that God Uh, declares people righteous and that the righteous shall live eternally because of their faith. Justified believers live forever in heaven. So I think that's kind of what he meant. But at the same time, a righteous man will live his life by faith as well because the righteous man lives his life day by day in anticipation of this future glory of living forever in God's presence. So what an amazing gift it is when we think about it. Uh, that God gives us the faith. He gives us the faith to live day by day in this difficult life. And then we live forever in his presence because we have believed the gospel. Well, it's an amazing passage. Uh, When we go through Romans, there is so much dissection of words and parsing of phrases, trying to figure out what they mean. And we we have to take these, these little passages apart piece by piece to try to understand the full meaning of what Paul is trying to talk about. And now that we've taken apart the entire passage, uh, one word, one phrase at a time, I think it's important that we put it back together again so that we don't miss the import of what Paul is trying to say to us. So here's my interpretive paraphrase of verses 16 and 17, incorporating everything I've said so far. Paul speaking, why would I be ashamed of the gospel? It is God's power to save God offered it to the Jews first, but it's available to all who receive it by believing in Jesus Christ as Savior. And what is this gospel? It is God's credit to us of his own righteousness, the righteousness we need to stand before him without guilt that we receive by faith in Jesus Christ alone, not by works, just as scripture has always said, the righteous man has eternal life because of his faith. Now, if I was a little heavy handed last week on our debt and our obligation to evangelize and to go about uh, spreading the good news, well, I wanna balance that this week uh, with a helping, a huge helping of God's grace because it's all about God's grace. We share the gospel, not out of guilt or fear, but out of love and thanksgiving for what Jesus Christ has done for us and that incredible grace that God has given to us. And as I thought about grace this week, Uh, The word that, of course, always pops into my mind is amazing because of the song, right? But amazing doesn't do God's grace justice. In fact, there's not a word uh, in the English language or in any language on earth that does any justice to God's amazing grace. It's stupendous, astonishing, mind-blowing, astounding, breathtaking. It's all of those things and more, more than we could ever describe because it's God being so good to us and it's the best gift that we could ever get and it's totally undeserved on our part and yet God gives it to us for free. That is incredible grace. Well, let's think about a couple of applications as we close. The first one is this. The gospel is an invitation that requires a response. You cannot get the benefits of the gospel without choosing to receive them. God offers us this gift of salvation, but we have to take that gift. And we take it by confessing that we are sinners in need of a savior and by placing our faith in Jesus Christ alone and his finished work on the cross for our salvation. And if we've done that, this gift is ours now. We are free from the debt that we owe to God for our sin. And his wrath against us has been satisfied by the blood of Jesus Christ, and our salvation is secure. So have you responded to God's invitation? Second is this. We can enjoy the effects of God's righteous judgment now. You know, believers don't have to fear God's judgment because God has already judged us not guilty because of our faith in Jesus. We are free. Can you imagine what it would be like not to owe anybody a single penny? No mortgage payment, no car payment, no insurance payment, no college payment, no payments. You don't owe anything to anyone. So make a mental list in your mind right now about all the people that you owe money to. You got that list? Now imagine somebody stamping paid in full on that mental list. You're free. You're financially free. You have no obligation, no debt to anyone. What kind of weight would that lift from you to know that you had complete financial freedom? Now, try to imagine your sin ledger like your financial ledger, and on that sin ledger is every sin that you've ever committed. It's probably gonna be more than one page, but go with me here. Uh, just imagine this ledger that you have of all the sins you've ever committed. And instead of uh, a financial ledger, now God stamps on that sin ledger, paid in full, to tetelestai, it is finished. Can you imagine the freedom that we could enjoy now, freedom from guilt of past sins and uh, guilt of anything else that we've done in our lives because God has already stamped our bill paid in full. We are free. We can enjoy the effects of God's righteous judgment today and the joy that we can anticipate in heaven sometime down the road will be ours today through the gospel of Jesus Christ. How amazing is God? Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, what can we say? We cannot put into words how grateful we are as we think about your grace and what you've done for us by dying on a cross for our sins so that we might live even though we are such sinful, selfish creatures. Lord, I pray that we would hear the gospel anew today. Lord, that we would Uh, think about where we have sin in our life, Lord. Shine a light on it in places that we don't see because we are uh, just self-absorbed creatures, Lord. Help us to see it. Help us to correct it. Help us to lead others to you, Lord, so that they might experience the incredible grace that you offer through the death of your son. And we'll thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.